Welcome to the Art Earths podcast, episode four, Cowboys. I'm Kat. And I'm Ben. Uh, hi, hi, everyone. Uh, so before we get to today's episode, a, a few pieces of housekeeping. If you're enjoying uh, the content, do subscribe at iTunes, um, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're really enjoying the show, then please consider leaving a five-star review or letting someone know about the show. Um, it helps to get the, the word out. If you want more information about the topics, including book recommendations, then uh, check out the website at www.ourearthpodcast.com. And so with that out of the way, we hope you enjoy the episode. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the origins of cowboys and cowboy culture and some of the ways in which that helps us think about human relationships with cattle and the land they inhabit. Lots of us may have heard the name Buffalo Bill an archetypal cowboy of the Wild West and his gun, hat and fringe jacket. But behind what has become a rather romantic and certainly iconic image of the American pioneering past is a darker story of the role that cowboys played in changing landscapes, environments, and of course, the history of cattle and cows. Though they may be all over the United States now, cows are not actually indigenous to this part of the world. And the story of cattle in America goes back to the era of European conquest and colonisation from the late 15th century onwards. Columbus's second voyage to the Dominican Republic brought horses and cattle farm through the West Indies, and um, there was an excess of them allowed to run wild. In 1519, Cortes invaded um, South America and um, modern-day Mexico with his conquistadors, and cattle landed in Mexico in 1521. Due to the very favourable conditions, there was a population explosion. Cattle farms evolved around missionary settlements and individual ranches given to Spanish settlers. And Spanish colonists transported cattle in South America, but also North America. Before European settlers came to North America, the indigenous plains Indians had, for thousands of years, relied on the vast herds of American bison, for much of their daily needs. This ended forever when, through the 19th century, uh, settlers moved westwards. The period of westward expansion is generally regarded to start in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase, which virtually doubled the size of the United States and ended in 1902, when Arizona and New Mexico became states. The great roads inwards were initiated after the purchase in 1804, starting with Lewis and Clark, who travelled inland and mapped land, resources and people. So it may have been seen as a time of opportunity for the colonisers, for the European settlers, but this was an era of loss and devastation for indigenous communities, an invasion, uh, not a discovery. And I remember uh, visiting St Louis quite a while ago uh, for a, a conference and the uh, museum there with the kind of the gateway arch, um, reflecting on the kind of the hero journey of Lewis and Clark, but then the less told story, um, of the kind of problematic and, and darker history of the destruction of indigenous communities. There were also impacts on the landscape itself. A key method adopted by settlers as they moved westward was open range farming. By the early 19th century, the grasslands of the eastern plains had been largely cleared and cultivated, driving the ranchers further west. 
the potential of these landscapes for frontier ranching was noted by Lewis and Clark as they encountered sweeping grasslands. On the 27th of April 1805, a few miles west of the Yellowstone's mouth, Lewis spoke of one of the handsomest plains I ever beheld as they journeyed closer to the mouth of the Yellowstone and the extensive, fertile and beautiful valley of the Big Muddy Creek. The land was covered with buffaloes, elks and antelopes. As farming developed, cattle were allowed to graze freely on plains previously occupied by bison and other large mammals. The grasslands were similar to the South American pampas, and gauchos initially herded semi-wild cattle independently. They were rounded up in spring for branding, and in autumn, suitable beef cattle were herded for slaughter. The increase in settlers led to, however, the requirement for crops as well as meat and the Homestead Act of 1862 opened the way for the establishment of fenced ranches. Although the two were also in conflict as fenced ranches, aided by the revolutionary invention of barbed wire, interrupted the traditional cattle trails. Closely related to the European bison, American bison, um, are, there, are two, there are two American species, woodland bison and plains bison. As men like Lewis and Clark noted, they were abundant in the early 19th century, but the arrival of Euro-American settlers marked a rapid, devastating decline. In January 1872, Grand Duke Alexis Romanov, fourth son of the Tsar of Russia, arrived in Nebraska in a private rail car, accompanied by an entourage of gold-braided courtiers. He had come to hunt bison. He was greeted by two companies of American infantry, two companies of cavalry, a regimental band and various dignitaries, including Major General Sheridan, the commander of the, the Missouri U.S. Army Department, General Custer, and William Buffalo Bill Cody. He proved to be a poor hunter, firing his pistol erratically from horseback and killing nothing, even though the docile bison were almost within touching range. It was not until Bill Cody lent him his own rifle, nicknamed Lucretia Borgia, that he managed a kill, jumping from his horse to slice off the bison's tail as a trophy. During the ensuing five days, he apparently managed five kills, two of them shot from his private rail car. Nothing like this, extrav this extravaganza would ever happen again. Within three years, the vast herds would be gone. For almost the first hundred years after the birth of the Republic, the American West was largely viewed as barren wasteland, fit only for occupation by the savage, a term used by settlers uh, to describe the Plains Indian tribes, not a word of course. This huge area comprised the Great Plains, the High Plains, the semi-arid prairies and the foothills of the Rockies. This view was based on a misconception of the complex ecosystem that supported the vast herds of bison, which at their peak numbered tens of millions. The indigenous two dozen or so North American Indian tribes had a much better understanding of their world. For many of them, their culture and continued existence relied on the relationship with the bison. They used every part of those that they killed for clothing, shelter, food, tools and weapons. Indeed, their relationship may have been more than one of mere passive harvesting. It seems likely that for 2,000 years the Plains Indians proactively farmed bison herds using fire to turn forested areas into grazing lands for the herds. 
whatever the exact reality of bison numbers and the ecosystems that once existed, it is difficult today to imagine the size of those herds. In 1839, Thomas Farnham, riding along the Santa Fe Trail, reports taking three days to travel through a herd, during which he travelled 45 miles. At one point, he could see animals for 15 miles in all directions, equating to a herd covering 1,350 square miles. In 1859, Luke Voorhees claimed to have travelled for 200 miles through a herd on the, Colo- on the Colorado-Nebraska borders. It seems unbelievable that within a period of 20 years, these vast herds would be reduced to the point of near extinction, with only 325 or so remaining in southern Canada. In their place came the longhorn cattle. As the historian Richard White has written, the transformation of the plains, deserts and mountains from a biological republic to a biological monarchy where humans reigned, where uselessness among lesser living things was a crime punishable by death, and where enterprise was the reigning value. So why and how had this happened? Although not not directly intended, the virtual extinction of the buffalo opened up the huge expanses of grazing land in Texas and the southwest, and the Euro-American settlers took the opportunity to fill the land with cattle. The near extinction of the bison can be attributed to five main causes, therefore. Human greed inexcusable government neglect, the hunter's preference for female hides, the phenomenal stupidity, or perhaps put more kindly, the uncommonly trusting nature of the bison themselves, and probably paramount, the invention of the development of rifle and ammunition technology, allowing rapid, deadly mass executions. Human depredation took two forms. Recreational hunting, epitomised by the story of Grand Duke Alexis, and the wasteful carnage of commercial hunters. Trophy hunters flocked in their hundreds, and the vast herds of docile animals were easier to hit than ducks at the fair. To get some idea of the scale and wastefulness of this operation, one party returned after a day's hunting with 1,375 bison tongues, the only cut of meat taken from the dead animals. One hunter, Orlando A. Brown, is credited with 5,855 kills in a two-month period in 1867. And Buffalo Bill Cody gained his nickname for killing over 4,000 buffalo in the 1867-68 season. He is credited with 20,000 kills in his 10 years of buffalo hunting. Trophies such as horns, tails and heads might be taken home, but the carcasses were left to rot where they fell. The commercial hunters were no less ruthless and wasteful. What started as a cottage industry hunting small numbers of bison largely for their pelts rapidly grew into a full-scale industry driven by commercial demand. Buffalo hides had become highly valued for coats and lap robes. Female pelts produced the best quality robes and so female bison were selectively culled with the inevitable effect on the breeding population. Latterly, the discovery that hides could be used to make belt drives for engines meant that there was a year-round demand for the skins. Hunters formed into syndicates with shooters and skinners, supported by a team of gun cleaners, cartridge reloaders and blacksmiths. A good shooter with a modern rifle could kill as many as two bison a minute. As one shooter, Frank H. Mayer, observed, there were 20 million bison, each worth $3. I could kill a hundred a day, 
that would be $6,000 a month or three times what was paid to the president. By the late 1870s, there were 5,000 shooters and skinners at work. Except for the hides, of which only a quarter were commercially useful and occasionally tongue and hump meat, the carcasses were left to rot. Latterly, a second industry developed. The bleached bones were ground down and made into trinkets and fertiliser, and hooves and horns turned into glue. But by then, the decimation had already occurred. The scale and wastefulness graphically illustrated in a picture taken in the mid-1870s of a 30-foot-high pyramid of bison skulls waiting to be ground into fertiliser. The end seemed to have come by 1884. In the spring, the hunting syndicates went out as usual, but there were no bison to be found. William Hornaday, director of the New York Zoological Park, wrote a few years later, Not even a bone or a buffalo chip remains above ground throughout the West to mark the presence of the buffalo. This, like, has probably never occurred in any country before, and most assuredly will never again. Whether that's true remains to be seen. Interestingly, although a fierce government critic, in his 1889 book, The Extermination of the American Bison, Hornaday makes the case for other factors also being involved in the catastrophe. He cites the encroachment of settlers pushing west with the destruction of grazing pastures and the decrease in the bison's natural predator, the American uh, indigenous Indians, leading to an unsustainable population explosion. Whatever the validity of these arguments, there can be no doubt that an indiscriminate human intervention delivered the coup de grace. And in all this, the authorities were at best complacent towards, or at worst, complicit in what was happening. There was undoubtedly an unwritten policy to deprive the Plains Indians of their staple food source, the bison. Supposedly, free ammunition was handed out to hunters, military personnel were encouraged to engage in recreational hunting, and lavish hunting parties were regularly arranged. The frank observation of a cowboy, Teddy Blue Abbott, a man who loved the trail and spent most of his life working driving cattle, are both fascinating and illuminating. All the slaughter was a put-up job on the part of the government to control the Indians by getting rid of their food supply, and I, in a way, it couldn't be helped. But just the same, it was a low-down, dirty trick way of doing the business, and the cowpunchers, as a rule, had some sympathy for the Indians. The covert policies went right to the top. General Philip Sheridan, who oversaw the military operations in the area, reportedly urged the Texas legislature to let them kill, skin and sell until the buffalo is exterminated, as it is the only way to bring a lasting peace and allow civilization to advance. Dan Flores argues that the reports about a government plan to deliberately wipe out the bison to make Plains Indians easier to deal with may have been attempts by hunters to excuse themselves from responsibility, and he questions the truth about the statement attributed to Sheridan. But whatever the exact details, it is without doubt that there was a large slaughter of bison by white hunters, and that this also led to the destruction of Plains Indians' culture. The supremacist views also deeply rooted in the white American consciousness, epitomised by President Jackson passing the Indian Removal Act in 1830, allowing the US government to forcefully remove all Native Americans residing east of the Mississippi River to move to present-day Oklahoma. 
This journey became known as the Trail of Tears. The justification for the act was rooted in a strong religious belief in the superiority of white Americans, encapsulated in what came to be known as their manifest destiny. Americans' God-given right to take over the continent, either by land purchase from other countries or communities, or forcible removal of indigenous tribes to reservations. 44 years later, a federal bill designed to protect the fast-disappearing bison was introduced. It was strongly supported, unsurprisingly, by Hornaday, but more surprisingly by Bill Cody, who recognised the unfolding tragedy. It passed in Congress, but President Ulysses E. Grant used his veto to prevent its passage. Hornaday's comments were, The protection of gain is now, and always has been, simply a question of money. A statement that perhaps echoes with contemporary debates over big game hunting or grouse shooting. Hornaday didn't give up the fight. With the cooperation at the Yellowstone National Park, where two dozen bison remained under protection, and the National Park Service, he co-founded the American Bison Society in 1905, the first conservation organisation to reintroduce an animal into the wild. In the 20 years that the bison herds were destroyed, other bovine herds replaced them. Some 5.5 million cattle, initially all mostly Texas Longhorn, took their place. The huge cattle boom lasted from the end of the Civil War until the late 1880s, when it crashed as suddenly and dramatically as the bison had before it. Cattle had been trailed from Texas to Missouri as early as 1842, but it was not until the late 1860s, after the Civil War, that economic necessity accelerated the cattle trade. At the end of the Civil War, the Confederate states, particularly Texas, were devastated and economically impoverished. They turned to herding of the wild cattle proliferating on the denuded plains and driving them north to satisfy the meat markets of the northern states. By making connections with the developing railroads pushing wapid by making connection with the developing railroads pushing rapidly westwards, shipments of meat from grazing grounds to coastal markets became possible and profitable. The trails from the south were long and arduous, covering up to a thousand miles. The two main routes were east to the Kansas and Missouri railheads, where they were often met with hostility from local farmers, often armed, or west towards the good beef markets of mining towns or military forts, risking Indian attacks on the trail. The work bore little resemblance to the modern mythicised image of the cowboy. It was hard, dirty and poorly paid, as graphically described by Teddy Blue Abbott in his autobiography. The cowhands were mostly employed on a seasonal, casual basis. No records have been kept of names or numbers, and a significant number joined and left at any time along the trail. It's not well documented how often any one individual travelled to the trail, though, although the majority did know more than one or two seasons. A significant number of these may well have been black or Hispanic, although there's also doubt about this as the records aren't good, and so we, do not, we don't know if numbers have been exaggerated. The cowboys were also dressed in much more diverse casual attire, not fitting the classical image. There were exceptions, such as Teddy Blue Abbott, who has already been mentioned. Their experience was much valued, and they were often retained by ranchers during the winter season. Such men were often kept on the ranch to manage the stock, while less experienced cowhands were committed to the trail. 
So it's possible to broadly distinguish between cowhands who were skilled horse and cowmen, often employed throughout the year by ranchers, and they fit much more into the classical modern stereotype, and cowboys who accompanied the cattle drives and were generally a more disparate group of casual workers. The herds themselves consisted largely of Texas longhorn, a cross between a brand of southern cattle and wild black cattle renowned for their skittish temperament. By the time they were rounded up for the autumn trail, they had been herded in the spring where young males had been castrated and calves branded to document their ownership. Each herd probably consisted of between 2,000 and 2,500, with between 8 and 20 cowboys herding them. Figures regarding the ratio of men to stock vary, of course. On a good day, the drive could cover up to 15 miles, but this was often shortened by stampedes, local disputes or natural disasters. Despite their early gruelling and often disastrous attempts at trailing, the Texans persisted. In 1865, 35,000 cattle were trailed, rising to 75,000 the following year. By 1871, the figure was around 600,000. Over the following Bonanza years, some 10 million cattle would be driven north, accompanied by half a million horses and some 50,000 cowboys. As Teddy Blue recalled, from that time on, big drives we made every year, and the cowboy was born. The railroads were rapidly pushing west, and the railheads spawned a series of cattle towns where stock was traded, loaded and transported to the affluent eastern states. From here, some were shipped further east to a growing European market. The logistic of transporting huge quantities of beef, either on the hoof or packed, spurred the development of mass slaughtering and meat storage, which both developed into highly lucrative industries. The taste for fresh beef in the east was initially thought to be insatiable and famous. High-class restaurants developed their own recipes and hallmark beefsteaks. The beef business became industrialised. Millions are invested, and in some cases millions made, but as will be seen, presumptions were also made and risks taken that were unsustainable, and the boom was finished in 20 or so years. After their difficulties trailing north in 1866, the early trailers realised that using the fast-developing railroads was going to be easier and safer. Competing with each other, rail companies were pushing westwards into the Great Plains by as much as between two and five miles a day. And there's an interesting troubling thread here in the themes we've looked at before and which often comes up in debates about modern consumer society, about how we become divorced from the reality and the impact of our taste for all sorts of things, including foods and how they're produced and made. And the historian William Cronin talks about this. He writes, severed from the form in which it had lived, severed from the act that had killed it, it vanished, that is, the cow, from human memory as one of nature's creatures. Its ties to earth receded, and in forgetting the animal's life, one also forgot the grasses and the prairie skies and the departed bison herds of a landscape that seemed more and more remote in space and time. In the open range of Wyoming, the Dakotas and Montana, the weather of the summer and the fall of 1886 was unusual and unsettling. Unreasonably dry, there were many bushfires and plagues of Rocky Mountain locusts ate the little grass available. The cattle were suffering, looking thin and miserable. There were also premonitionary signs of a bad winter ahead, 
Beavers were collecting unusually large winter stores. Moose were developing unusually thick winter coats, and migratory birds flew south several weeks earlier than normal. Snowy owls, never usually seen so far south at this time of year, were observed, and a local Native American wagged his finger. These birds were the harbinger of a bad winter. He was right. The end of the open range ranching and cattle driveways was due to severe winter in 1860. The end of open range ranching and cattle drives was due to the severe winter of 1886-87 and the overgrazing recent work has revealed how much the different nutritional needs of bison and cattle destroyed the old flora of the plains coupled with new quarantine laws and the westward expansion of railroads. So that's some of the reality of what lies behind the expansion in the west in America, the cowboys and cattle ranching an enduring element of American culture, but also a problematic one. In subsequent episodes, we're going to look a bit more at the image of the cowboy and the expansion of farming more generally. So that's it from us. Um, Remember, if you're enjoying the content, subscribe at iTunes, Spotify. um, And if you're really enjoying the show, then please consider leaving us a five-star review or letting uh, your friends or family know. And if you want more information about the topics, including book recommendations, then check out our website at www.earthspodcast.com. Thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.